From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There are more black women presiding over Colorado courtrooms than at any time in history. We'll hear from two of them. I'm going to be very honest right now, and I don't know that I've ever shared this with anyone, but it's like I'm between a rock and a hard place because it is a system that I have fought for all my life. I believe in the system, but I also see some wrongs. But I believe that the system is correct, but I believe that there are some people that do things that are wrong. Diversity also implies a diversity of perspective, a diversity of experience. We all have something to gain by having different perspectives at the table um, because it creates a more perfect union. It allows us to get as close to justice as possible. How life on the bench is both gratifying and isolating. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's been a lot of focus on the U.S. Supreme Court as the Senate vets Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Today, we turn our attention to Colorado's courts, which have struggled with diversity. The Denver Post recently reported that about 40 percent of defendants in Colorado are black or Latino, and yet only about 10 percent of district court judges are. Specifically in the district where Elijah McClain died in police custody in 2019, the Post reports that there has never been a black district court judge. Today, two black women who sit on the bench join us, one who's near the end of her career. I am Claudia Jordan. I am the first African-American female judge in the Rocky Mountain region. Judge Jordan served on the Denver County Court for two decades. She's retired, but subs as needed. And our second guest? I am Judge Jill Deborah Durancy, and I am a Denver District Court judge. Judge Durancy was seated in July, so her appointment began mid-pandemic. Our two guests know each other. They've been in the same legal circles for years. I asked Judge Jordan to hearken back. Does she remember what it was like to be starting on the bench? Oh, yes, I remember the early days. And she probably did not have this experience because in the after times, no one got to say, please rise. Oh, you mean because of the pandemic? Because of the pandemic. That's just not a thing that bailiffs say anymore? So I'm in domestic relations, and we have duty court. And during duty court, we do have parties come in only for emergencies. So those are temporary restraining orders abduction prevention orders. And so when they come in for those, it's usually just one party. I do get the, please rise, you know, Judge Durancy. (laughs) Well, that was just awesome. The first time it was done for me, please rise. And everyone stood and I was like, oh, they're doing that for (laughs) For me. me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not getting the same feel. I also, um, I rarely have more than, you know, two to three people in the actual courtroom. So, so it definitely feels different than when I applied and what I anticipated. The hustle and the bustle in the courtroom isn't there. But I'm confident that we'll get back to that at some point. I I don't think that things can stay the way that they've been long term. 
you, you notice differences in what, how justice is meted out or? Well, I don't think there's a difference in how justice is meted out, but I think that there's a feel being in the courtroom with the parties there, without masks. There's just a difference in the way that people feel comfortable communicating. Now, when people are appearing by telephone, sometimes they're in the offices of their attorneys, and so they're still wearing masks. So it's hard for me to hear. Hmm. People have technological issues, which makes it hard for me to get as much information as I need. It's like justice by Zoom. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) what it is. That's exactly what it is. It's not what you pictured when you signed up for this. It's not, but I do believe that most of the time they're still getting the justice that they need. And one of the benefits to doing hearings technologically is that people who couldn't afford to come down, people who are having transportation issues, people who had childcare issues, they can now participate more fully than they would have because they don't have the same limitations. Interesting. Um, They can just go into their bathroom and, you know, participate in a full hearing Um, Whereas before, they might have to stop, check on their children, bring their children to court, you know, just... It can actually be a democratizing force in that way. Yeah, it is. If there's enough bandwidth, if there's enough, you know, mm. if the service is sufficient. Well, let me say, judges, that this is not your first time meeting. Your connection goes back to the late 90s when Judge Durancey, you moved to Colorado, and Judge Jordan became a mentor of sorts. What was that time like for each of you in your careers, What I remember is that you were working in municipal court, Mm -hmm. and I was assigned to municipal court at that time. So she appeared in front of me frequently. And it was was a joy and a treat uh, because she's always been a good attorney. Her compassion, her... She worked hard for her clients, and she always stuck to her guns no matter what I said or did. I think for me, it's... I mean, I've, I was from Brooklyn and, you know, I've been in a number of different courts, but there's something powerful about appearing in front of someone who looks like you, who recognizes how much it takes to get to where you are, even as an attorney. And, you know, I had heard different things about Judge Jordan. <laughs> oh, tell me what you heard. Well, you know, she was kind of strict and you had to make sure you were on time, that you had to make sure that you had all your ducks in a row. And I wanted to make sure that whenever I appeared in front of her, that I never disappointed her. And so that's just an added layer of pressure. But even after meeting her in court, we also connected through the Five Points area. I had an office there, and she was very involved in the Five Points area there. And so that helped to solidify and kind of like build a relationship that we had already had. Outside of the courtroom. Outside of the courtroom, Focused on this really historic neighborhood of Denver that's been called the Harlem of the West. Go ahead, We also Judge worked on a Black Women's Bar Association yes. for a while. Yeah, we were... Sisters-in-law? Sisters-in-law. We- Sisters-in-law. <laughs> it's a very clever name. There's something I want to key in on, Judge Durancey, that when you appeared in those early days before Judge Jordan, you didn't want to let her down. Right. Say more about that. So, you know, I mean, there's a saying to whom much is given, much is expected. There weren't a lot of African-American attorneys. And so for her, as well as it is for me, when you see someone 
who has gotten to this point, especially when there are so many defendants who are of color in Denver County Court, you want to make sure that you're presenting yourself in the best possible light so that when I leave the courtroom, she's proud of having seen me in front of her. But that Um, that feels to me like a burden that I, as a white dude, wouldn't have to carry quite as much, if at all. Do you think that's true? I mean, this idea of I have to represent myself and my race, you know, that's how it's been phrased, I think, in the past. Yeah, well, I don't know the burden you have to carry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, (laughs) but, you know, for me, because I know that when I walk into the courthouse, there aren't a lot of African-American attorneys in Colorado. There aren't a lot of African-American. And at the time, I believe in Denver County Court, there were so few African-American judges that it's not a matter of carrying the burden of my race, but it's wanting to make sure that I represent myself in a way that makes the judges proud. Mm. Um, And I think particularly for me, there was pressure because I wasn't from Colorado. I had no real connection to Colorado. I had moved here from another state. I didn't go to DU and CU like most of the other judges did and most of the other other attorneys did. Mm. So for me, it was extra pressure. But I also wanted to make sure I did a good job, that I was prepared. Thank you for clarifying that, Judge Durancey. There's something I want to pick up on and have you address Judge Jordan. Just by way of background, the Denver Post recently reported on how few judges of color there are in Colorado. Out of the state's 196 district court judges, only five are black women. Zooming out to the entire court system in the state, uh, there are only three more black female judges, so a total of eight. Uh, But we heard Judge Durancey reflect that many of those who come before the court are people of color disproportionately. How does that feel? How do you reconcile that in your head? Well, it has not been anything that is new. It has been what I have grown up with and what I've seen as an attorney and as a judge. And how do I reconcile it? I'm not sure that I can. Uh, It's not something that I believe that people of color commit more crimes, but I believe that perhaps our neighborhoods are policed a bit differently. Do you think it's also... Economic? Do you think it's also about access? Oh, sure. Obviously it is. Um, but those are things that are beyond my control. And so as a judge, what is in front of me is what I deal with. But yes, it's, it's education. You know, if we had a different educational system, I have such a wish list of how I could improve the world. But no one will really listen to me. I'm hearing you right now. <laughs> and I'm glad you bring up this point of what any individual person in their role is capable of changing. I can imagine that in the current discussions of systemic racism, for instance, one of the key systems people point to is the judicial system, of which you two play a critical role. You know, so I wonder how you see yourself in that system. I'm going to be very honest right now, and I don't know that I've ever shared this with anyone, but it's like I'm between a rock and a hard place. Because it is a system that I have fought for all my life. I believe in the system, but I also see some wrongs. But I believe that the system is correct, but I believe that there are some people that do things that are wrong. And it hurts because we've had at our church, and Jill and I go to the same church, at our church we've had many opportunities to discuss that. And we have a minister that is very active, and he is very critical of the system. Hmm. 
And I can't change his mind. But does that hurt? It hurts. It hurts. Because as I said, I believe the system works. I don't believe everybody in the system is correct. Your job as a judge is to uphold the law. I imagine sometimes that means upholding laws you may not believe in as well. Do you think that's true? That is true. And I guess the best example of that is I saw the latest nominee for the uh, Supreme Court. And she said that she would uphold the law. And that's kind of curious because her version of what upholding the law may mean may be very different than what I mean. And it's the same law. Isn't that interesting? That is very interesting. But I'll give you an example. I never applied to be a district court judge because here in Colorado we had the death penalty until this spring. Um, I could not have sentenced anyone to death. And so why put myself in that position? So you never... Uh, tried to go for that role no. in the judicial system. Right. Hmm. Because I couldn't. That was one of the laws that I knew that I could not impose. I would love your thoughts right now, Judge Durancy. Well, I mean, having just recently been appointed, I'm in domestic relations. The benefit in being in domestic relations is it's not what traditionally we would consider a court of law. It's yeah, what a are the court kinds of, of cases, once again? Yeah, just... so right now I handle dissolutions of marriage, paternity cases, custody cases, those kinds of invalidity of marriage. And so obviously there's law, there's statutes that I have to follow. But when it comes to issues involving parenting time or maintenance or child support, there's a little bit more... Um, Leeway, discretion, judges, judges, exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. And so it's not as hard and fast as it would be going into criminal, for example. How important do you think it is, Judge Durancy, that there be diversity on the bench? I think it's incredibly important. I mean, first and foremost, it's important for people and litigants to see that there are other people out there who don't necessarily look like them and some who do look like you who are able to make these decisions. But I think diversity also implies a diversity of perspective, a diversity of experience. We all have something to gain by having different perspectives at the table um, because it creates a more perfect union. It allows us to get as close to justice as possible. um, I I wonder also just for... Black people who come to your court, do you think that there's just a a higher level of comfort in opening up, in addressing a judge? I mean, that's, you know, I was a little nervous when you guys were coming because I don't address judges every day. (laughs) I do. And I was surprised to see that there are a lot of African-Americans that come to Denver District Court. You know, and on a personal note, I've had a case in Denver District Court. I I myself was actually divorced in Denver District Court. And so having someone that might be able to understand different cultural issues, different issues that their children might have encountering in the educational system, being impacted by the judicial system in tangential ways, I might be able to understand that in a way that other judges may not be able to understand it. I might be able to understand what it's like to have raised my children alone, whereas a male may not be able to understand that if they haven't experienced that. Anything that you'd add, Judge Jordan? No, I I think she... No, and then I begin to speak. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I think she put it perfectly. That is perspectives. And it's something that we do bring because I can tell you, I don't know how many times that 
when a defendant walked in and would see me and just smile. And, you know, it was just kind of a sense of, okay, I may go to jail, but hey, I know that I'm going to be heard. Hmm. Right. And you think that would be a skin color, a function of your skin color? Yes. Okay. I do. I really do. I would like each of you to go back to when you first had the seed planted in your brain for a legal career, for a deep sense of justice. I'll start. Yeah. I was eight years old, and my uncle had been involved in a civil case in North Carolina. And That's I, where you're from originally. That's where I'm from. And I was raised by my grandparents and an only child. And so I was always in a room with older people. And they seemed not to notice me. And they were just talking about how there was a need to have good attorneys. And so from that, that is when I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer. And my grandmother had a fifth grade education. So most of the people around her had that type of education. And so I would begin to read documents for the people in the neighborhood. I became the little lawyer. And so it's always been something that I've aspired to do. This was a neighborhood whose history was a sharecropping history. Do yes, I have that right? that is correct. So when you say you would go around reading those documents, does that imply that there were people who could not read in the neighborhood? Is that yes, what I'm hearing? We were farmers. Yes, sharecroppers. Yes. And what did you notice the effect was when you made something clear to someone? That must have had a payoff for you. Of course it did. They understood what they, the document that they were receiving, you know, whether it be about their land, you know, just all kinds of mail that they may receive that they just had no idea about what to do. And can you imagine a child reading to an adult and having the adult say, oh, thank you, thank you. Um, the empowerment of that. I never thought of it that way, but certainly it increased my desire to help people. And which is why I was so strict, I guess, with, you know, <laughs> I, I, I no, it was something that I've been taught, you know, from an early age. And, you know, from my early career also as a judge, Judge Flanagan, who was the first African-American appointed to the bench, you know, he was my mentor. And I think that was one, and Judge Cole, I clerked for Judge Cole. It was one of the things that I learned from them. This is Judge James Flanagan and, and Judge Morris Cole. Morris Cole. Morris Cole said on the juvenile bench, and I learned from both of them that you have to be better, but that was something that I learned at my grandmother's foot as well, hmm. that you have to be better than the next person. You went on to have a lot of firsts. I mean, we described you as the first black female judge in the Rockies, but that, that's only one of many. List a few of the firsts. Can I have you brag on yourself for a moment, <laughs> Judge Jordan? Of course. <laughs> Well, I worked at uh, the Colorado Legislative Council. I was the first black that was hired there. I, they put together the Blue Book, for the Blue instance. Book, the yeah. I was a legislative analyst. I did finance. I mean, I know that when you attended, because you, you went to CU Boulder for I law, right? I CU Boulder. Not a sea of black faces at that Not point. Not a sea of black faces. It was three in my class. I was the only African-American female. And so when people say, oh, yeah, I know you, and I go like, oh, it's pretty easy for you to know me, I stand out, don't I? Hmm. Yeah. Judge Durancey, what, what was that first seed of justice for you? You know, I always thought it was because of some of the experiences that I'd had in New York. I grew up in Brooklyn at a time where I saw a lot of young, particularly young black boys being shot down by the police. I mean, not unlike what's going on now, but at the time as a young um as a young child, it it impacted me. But in preparing to apply for this position, 
Because you applied to be a judge. I did. And yeah. I was talking to one of my brothers who has a much better memory than I did. And he had actually in- informed me that it had been long before that. I had already known that I had wanted to be a lawyer, that I had always said that I wanted to be a lawyer. Huh. And he triggered my memory um, that when I was young, my parents aren't from this country. My parents are from Haiti and English wasn't their first language. And so we had to go to court several times for kind of like landlord tenant, you know, related issues. And he recalls that we had gone to court with my parents and that at the time we did have an attorney who spoke Haitian Creole and just being there, having someone defend us, having someone who understood what we were saying and relay it to a judge was pretty powerful. It strikes me that the similarity between your stories is the thrill and the satisfaction of helping make something clear to someone when their lives are on the line. Absolutely. And I think being a judicial officer is a part of that. You know, even describing to people what like right now in my role, what their parenting time is going to be, making sure they understand what it's going to look like, how to work together um, in the future so that you don't have to appear in front of me again. But it's all a process of serving the community, serving others. It's really public service. Um, And that's what, in my opinion, most of being a lawyer for me was about. And it is for me as a as a judge as well. You mentioned earlier, Judge Jordan, that at CU Boulder, for instance, um, what did you say? You stood out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I do wonder to what extent being a person of color in the law and then rising to the bench has also been a lonely experience or if it can be isolating? I would say lonely and isolating. Um, Prior to COVID, the judicial officers would meet once a year. And way back when, it was like 270 of us. And can you imagine 270 of us and I walk (laughs) in? And then I can remember when Karen was appointed and then they would confuse Karen, Karen Ashby. um, Another judge. Another judge. And I would go like, we look nothing alike. Uh, So, yes, it's a lonely feeling because I also kept people at a distance, you know, because I, I don't want any impropriety. I don't want people to be able to say anything. There has been more momentum for people of color on the bench since Governor Polis took office. We got the idea for this interview from an article in Essence magazine by Chandra Thomas-Whitfield in Denver. And this article looked at the record number of black female judges appointed in Colorado in just the last few years. Whitfield reported that Polis has chosen more black women judges than his 42 predecessors combined. Does that feel like progress? Yes, of course it's progress. And absolutely it feels like progress. Um, In the same article that Ms. Whitfield wrote, there was a a statement, and I can't recall if it was attributed to Judge Nakia Bland or Judge Francis Johnson, that in 2020, we shouldn't have any firsts. I mean, it definitely feels wonderful that we have the momentum that we have now. But for there to have been so many years where no African-Americans and no African-American women women were appointed is definitely disappointing. But I'm excited now that people are recognizing the importance of diversity, the importance of inclusion, the importance of different voices at the table and seeing value in that. Do you think enough women 
And do you think enough women of color can imagine themselves judges? Yes. Do you think women of color have never applied? There have been people that have been applying throughout the years. They were just never given the opportunity. We could probably list you names of people where we have coached in terms of how to prepare for the interviews. It's just a matter of, um, is the timing right? And having the right appointing authority in place. But I think in terms of role models um, for young girls, for people who may have considered the legal profession as a realistic profession for them, they can look at us and say, oh, I can do this too. And role models for those ages, for teenagers, for elementary school students who have considered different options. Now it feels like this is a real option for them. I would agree with that. I spoke to a a group of kids in an alternative situation, alternative school. Yeah. And that's what they pointed out to me. They were just ready for me to attack me and attack the system. But after I explained my role and they began to better understand the whole system, because people often believe that judges just dismiss cases. That's not true. Uh, That's just not true. And after that, the instructor called and said that a girl who had not really wanted to participate was now considering uh, going to law school. And I just felt good about that. So, Have you made a mistake, and how do you deal with it? You mean on the you know, I guess as you could say on the bench, but I, I'm curious how you'd answer that as well as an attorney. Oh, I've made mistakes. Everyone's made mistakes. But my goal is to learn from them and to make sure that I don't do it a second time. And that I think that's all that most people strive to. And you try to rectify that mistake. Um, but if you can't, you ensure that it's not something that happens again. Yes. And, of course, I've made mistakes in life and on the bench. Generally, the mistakes you make on the bench are appealable. <laughs> Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, so um, it's something that I would pray every day that, you know, that I would do the right thing. And so if I made a mistake, as Jill said, I hope that I learn from it and never let it happen again. Before we go, we have to talk about the painting. <laughs> so you have a plan, I think, Judge Jordan, to gift something to Judge Durancey. I do. An image that I will tweet at CPR Warner. What is this image? This image is of a black man reaching over a wall and extending his hand to help another person up. And before I got on the bench, and as you are appointed to the bench, you're swearing in, people will bring you gifts. And so that was one of the gifts that was given to me in 1994. This helping hand. Helping hand. And I am going to give it to Judge Durancey. And, and I am going to disclose it. Um, <laughs> we're required to disclose any gifts that are made. So. I, I love that you're dotting your eyes and crossing your teeth. Here. Uh, yeah. And, and I have seen the image and it's really pretty powerful for me because that's exactly what it is. When you have judges and, and attorneys who help each other, it's really that's exactly what it is. Reaching back and helping someone else up. That happened for you, Judge Jordan. Yes, it did. A- and then it happened for you, Judge right. Durancey, yes. b- from George. Yes. Judge Jordan. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I want to make clear as well, there have been, as I told you, a lot of people that have extended their hand and helped me quite a bit. 
And it hasn't just been people of color. People have been so good to me. Many have not, but many also have been just wonderful. Absolutely. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. You're really generous with your time, so I appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. Judges Claudia Jordan and Jill Deborah Durancey of Denver. They're two of a small but growing number of black female jurists in Colorado. They're also featured in a recent issue of Essence magazine, which inspired our conversation. Special thanks to author Chandra Thomas Whitfield. When we come back, how to cozy up to an asteroid. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Senate debates are behind us, the presidential surrogates are popping up, and already hundreds of thousands of ballots have been cast. It all means the election finish line is finally in view. I'm Caitlin Kim from CPR's public affairs team. This week on our politics podcast, Purplish, we talk about the latest election developments and where things go from here. It was was odd. He actually had positive feelings about both candidates. That is a very unique voter. Yes. (laughs) That's Purplish, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Super PACs and dark money groups are spending big in Colorado. The focus of much of that spending is the U.S. Senate race here. Data reporter Sandra Fish of the Colorado News Collaborative is with us to talk through some of these numbers. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Ryan. It's great to be back with you again. Indeed. And of course, this Senate race pits incumbent Republican Cory Gardner against Democratic former Governor John Hickenlooper. Walk us through the top line numbers and maybe put them into some context. You know, Hickenlooper raised more than $22 million in three months between June and September. That's more than any other Colorado Senate candidate has raised in an entire six-year cycle. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Gardner surpassed his own threshold this week. But it isn't anywhere close to Hickenlooper's fundraising. He set a personal record of nearly $8 million over three months, but his $25 million total falls short of Hickenlooper's $37 million total raised. This is a huge shift in fundraising. Through the end of June, Gardner always had an overall fundraising lead, Mm. though Hickenlooper consistently brought in more than Gardner since the last quarter of 2019. A little later, I'll ask you what the forces are behind this tremendous fundraising. But where and how are the candidates spending that money? This is another huge third quarter difference between the two candidates, Ryan. Hickenlooper spent $20 million over the three months, while Gardner spent about $12 million. Okay. A decent chunk of it goes toward paying staff, consultants, voter outreach. But as you probably noticed, if you're watching TV or streaming Hulu... Both candidates are dropping huge amounts of money on TV ads. Most recently, Gardner is portraying himself as bipartisan. There are a hundred senators in Washington. Who is most bipartisan? Cory Gardner. While Hickenlooper brought in Governor Jared Polis to vouch for him. John Hickenlooper is one of the most effective and compassionate leaders I know, and we need that right now. Those are the more positive ads, I suppose, but there's some dark stuff out there, too. And I suppose there are layers to the term dark in this respect. I mean, super PACs and dark money nonprofits, of course, which we mentioned at the top, are major funders of these ads that are darker in messaging, correct? Yes. Good question, Ryan. It's the super PACs and dark money nonprofits that do the heavy lifting on the negative side. More than half the TV ad spending in the Senate contest since July 
nearly $29 million, comes from outside groups. You know, right now we're seeing ads from the Republican Senate Leadership Fund and the Democratic Senate Majority PAC, among others, though that Democratic PAC is focusing their efforts elsewhere, they announced on Friday. These super PACs, they take unlimited donations and spend unlimited sums as long as they don't coordinate with candidates or political parties. But the lines between PACs and party leadership are pretty finely drawn. Now, you mentioned the the Democratic support they're withdrawing. Is that because they see Hickenlooper as the the front runner here? That is totally the case, Ryan. So we know how much super PACs donate because they report to the FEC. Dark money groups don't. Just walk us through that distinction a bit. So nonprofit organizations are considered dark money because they don't need to disclose their political spending with the FEC thanks to their 501c status. They also don't have to disclose their donors, so we don't know where the money comes from for the most part. Mm. We can track down some of their spending through other sources like TV ad contracts filed with the FCC or transparency watchdogs like Open Secrets. There were a couple of local nonprofits that popped up during this cycle and fueled ads attacking each candidate, but several national nonprofits are involved on either side too. Most recently, nonprofit Rocky Mountain Values started airing more than $1 million in TV ads that mentioned Cory Gardner and the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. That group is clearly aligned with Democrats, but they never tell you to vote for or against Gardner. Mm. And they obviously want to bring that connection to the light because they think it's a negative one. Those Some may yes. interpret that in another way. Sandra, I understand that a lot of the donations coming in for the Senate candidates are from people not in the state. Individual donations, I guess. Tell us more about that. You know, Colorado donors make up just 26 percent of Hickenlooper's individual donors. And California's account for 20%. For Gardner, about one-third of his fundraising comes from Coloradans, with the rest from out of state, like 8% from California, 7% each from Florida and Texas. And let me note that both these candidates seek out donations from these other large states via their Facebook ads. That's how they're raising so much money, seeking small donors from other states. Now, I understand the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg last month may have had a significant impact on the campaign finances of John Higginlooper and Diane Mitch Bush, who's running in the heavily contested 3rd Congressional District. That's true, Ryan. Democrats were really devastated when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died last month, leaving an open seat on the Supreme Court. They responded with their credit cards by donating hundreds of millions of dollars to campaigns in the days after her death. And other Senate candidates in other states are reporting numbers even larger than Hickenlooper. Meanwhile, the Senate is holding hearings on the nomination of conservative Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who would be the third justice appointed by President Trump. She's likely to be confirmed to the high court, but Democrats hope to flip the Senate, maintain a majority in the House, and of course, land the White House, which would mean one-party control. Uh, Last question, since we mentioned Diane Mitch Bush in CD3, Give me a quick rundown of the finances there. Democrats are looking to put up a fight there, with Mitch Bush outraising Republican opponent Lauren Boebert. Mitch Bush raised $2.6 million between July and September. Boebert raised about $1.9 million in the same time frame. And outside groups are really stepping up their TV game in the 3rd Congressional District during the last two weeks. 
Uh, no rest for the weary viewers in the third congressional district. None. Thanks so much for joining us, Sandra. Great, Brian. Good to talk to you. Sandra Fish is a data reporter working with Follow the Money Colorado. It's a project of the Colorado News Collaborative. Coloradans are voting in force. Hundreds of thousands have already returned their ballots, and state officials say it's all going well so far, despite online rumors of voter intimidation. CBR's Allison Sherry explains. It started with alarming posts on Nextdoor and Facebook. Men in tactical gear standing near a ballot drop box asking for IDs. Guys outside a rec center claiming falsely that stamps need to be placed on ballots before going in drop boxes. These stories are simply not true. Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. A top strategy is the strategy to ignore the noise. Voters should really consider what they are seeing on social media posts and find election information from trusted sources. Denver clerk and recorder Paul Lopez investigated both of those complaints of voter intimidation by watching surveillance footage. He said he didn't see any evidence of anything except... The one thing that we saw was people steadily going by, taking selfies in front of the box. The number of people who've already voted in Colorado is more than 24 times higher than it was at this point in 2016, around 300,000 voters. Officials with the Colorado Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management say they are constantly watching social media for misinformation and sharing what they find with intelligence officials, if necessary. The state office confirmed they have two ongoing cyber investigations, but wouldn't elaborate further on the details except to say they do not have to do with social media. Governor Jared Polis on Thursday said voter intimidation does happen, and he wants people to report any threats to local authorities. Uh, we're going to continue to make sure that every Coloradan, regardless of their party, their ideology, is able to cast their ballot free from intimidation. Colorado has 24-hour surveillance on its more than 300 drop boxes that should capture any violations. Still, Griswold said voter intimidation can happen anywhere, and she wants to know about it. Voter intimidation is always illegal. Even if it's within 100 feet, 1,000 feet, it doesn't matter how far you are away from the polling location, it is always illegal. And we will act very quickly to make sure that voters have their voices heard. Uh, so far, everything is going really well. To counter the hair-raising rumors online, elected officials say they're reaching out across the state to make sure everyone feels good, excited even, about dropping off their ballots. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. A spacecraft built in Colorado will sidle up to an asteroid tomorrow and try to grab a chunk of it. So this is the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft. It's the size of a small van. Its target site is a few parking spaces wide on an asteroid traveling at 63,000 miles an hour. Lockheed Martin in Littleton built OSIRIS-REx and is flying it. Olivia Billet is the science lead on the mission. Olivia, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. You have been working on OSIRIS-REx for seven years. There are members of your team who've been working on it for even longer. NASA's never done this before. Tomorrow's the big day. Are you nervous? You know, I think our team is just really excited at this point. We have been working on this for so long, and we are ready. The spacecraft is ready. We have done all our testing. We've done all our analysis at this point. It's up to the spacecraft and Bennu. Yeah, Bennu. Okay, so explain uh, that Bennu is the asteroid. Correct. And tell us a little bit about Bennu. 
Bennu is a near-Earth asteroid, uh, so it's in an orbit similar to Earth's around the Sun. Uh, it is about 500 meters across, so it's a pretty small asteroid. It's a carbonaceous asteroid, uh, so it's got carbon-based minerals on it, and we've confirmed that it has water-based minerals as well. So it is an asteroid containing materials that are very near and dear to our heart, and we are hoping to bring back a sample starting tomorrow. As for your frame of mind, I can so relate to how you're feeling when you've thought about something for so long you just want to get it over with. You just want to do it, the thing you've been preparing for, you know? Correct. We've been orbiting <laughs> this asteroid for almost two years now. We've been mapping it and surveying it and scanning it and building up our knowledge of it. And then we've done two rehearsals. We did a checkpoint burn rehearsal back in April and a matchpoint burn rehearsal in August. So this is it. We are ready for TAG. TAG uh, is the touch-and-go sample acquisition that we'll do tomorrow. TAG, the touch-and-go. Uh I, I, I don't know what you meant by those rehearsals. What did you call them again? Uh, it's the checkpoint and match point. Those are the two burns the spacecraft will do as it autonomously guides itself into our sample site. Okay. So this is an automated experience. Correct. Yeah. The asteroid is uh, over 200 million miles away. Uh, so it's an 18-minute signal delay from the asteroid to Earth. So our spacecraft has to do this activity all by itself. And you will find out, I guess, 18 minutes past when it actually occurs, if it occurs, that it has occurred. Correct. Yes, okay. we'll be monitoring from our facility in Denver, um, but everything we see will be, in that sense, history of what has already happened. You said that you have been trying to get to know this asteroid as, as best as possible before your touch and go. Uh, that process, I think, took a little longer than you anticipated, right? It did, yeah. Bennu had some surprises for us. Before we launched OSIRIS-REx, we expected Bennu to be uh, what we refer to as a sandy beach, covered in a very fine grain material, uh, kind of like the lunar surface. Okay. When we got to Bennu, our very first pictures showed us that actually Bennu was covered in rocks, in boulders, large boulders, that are not so safe for the spacecraft to land on. Uh, so we had to extend our survey period and map the asteroid in much greater detail to find ourselves a site that would sa be safe for the spacecraft to land on. And I think you call the landing spot Nightingale. Do I have that right? Correct. Yeah, there was a, a whole down-select process to, to select our sampling site, and they all had different uh, bird names in honor of the Bennu name from mythology. Oh, I see. Bennu is a mythological—is that a bird? Correct. It's a mythological crane. Okay. I am showing my ignorance <laughs> here about of, of the classics. And I, I guess then this is a relatively smooth spot on a rocky asteroid. Is that what I That understand? is correct. Emphasis being on relatively. Uh -huh. uh, it is originally we had envisioned going to a site that was at least 50 meters in diameter that would all be a nice beach for us to, uh, to sample. And instead... Uh, Nightingale is much smaller than 50 meters, a little under 8 meters, and even that is not all safe for us to land on. So there are some large boulders, including one we call Mount Doom, almost a building-sized boulder on the edge of the crater we're going to. My goodness, this has to be so specific, so detail-oriented. There's not a lot of room for error, in other words. Correct. And that's the reason for those autonomous maneuvers that I was talking about. Uh -huh. The spacecraft has to autonomously guide itself in with high-precision performance into that landing site. So in layman's terms, explain what will happen, that kind of sequence. So uh, we are currently in orbit around Bennu. The spacecraft is in about a one-kilometer orbit about Bennu. Uh, at about noon tomorrow local time, we will depart orbit and we'll begin flying towards the site. The spacecraft will start mapping the overflight and taking a look at the surface and estimating where it will target. 
it will make two major adjustments, this checkpoint burn, which will begin our descent down. Okay. And that's the thing you've rehearsed or one of the things you've rehearsed. Correct. And then we will do the match point burn, which will match Bennu's rotation. That's our final burn. And that will bring us on our final trajectory down towards the surface of Bennu. How difficult is it that Bennu is really speeding along? Remind us of its traveling speed. Uh, That is an excellent question. I think I had (laughs) 63,000 miles an hour. That sounds correct. Um, Yeah. So, well, we're in orbit about Bennu, so we have matched Bennu's orbital speed around the sun. So, in that sense, we are moving relative to Bennu. Kind of in that envelope. Correct. Yeah. Um, This touch and go is to collect a sample. Correct, yes. And how will that work? I mean, is that So as we begin our final descent to the surface, um, we have what we call the TAG-SAM arm. It's the touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism. And if you think of it uh, kind of like a reverse vacuum cleaner is how we describe it. Uh, So it looks a little bit like the uh, air filter from an old car. It's a, a cylinder at the end of this long arm that deploys out. And we will approach the asteroid press that head against the surface of the asteroid and fire a gas bottle, which will push the material into that canister and trap it. So when you say a reverse vacuum, it's blowing air out to unsettle the dust on the surface. Correct. And to force that material into the canister head. Interesting. And then that will be brought back. Correct. Once we have collected a sample, we will back away from the asteroid um, and then we'll spend a few weeks assessing that sample stowing the sample, and then next spring we will leave the asteroid and begin our journey back to Earth. So that sample will make it back to Earth. Correct. In September of 2023, uh, the (laughs) spacecraft will come back to Earth and it will uh, drop that sample return capsule off into the Utah desert. Gosh, that's fascinating. So it, it really just plops down into Utah? Correct. I mean, Hopefully it has to more make it controlled the... than a plop, but yes. <laughs> there's a there's a parachute on it or Correct. something like that? Correct, yes. Okay. But it, it has to travel through the atmosphere, and that means things will get very hot. Yes. It is in a protected canister with a heat shield. Uh, this is a heritage uh, capsule that we have used before on the Stardust and Genesis missions, also both from Lockheed Martin. Uh, so we have experience doing this, but it is still a difficult endeavor. It's not literally the same capsule. It's not literally the same Okay, capsule. but the same... Uh, the same heritage. Heritage, yeah. You can do some analysis, though, before it arrives back on Earth as to what it contains. Do I have that right? Correct. We'll do a series of activities to estimate how much sample we've acquired. Okay. Um, So once we've backed away from the asteroid, we'll do some sample imaging. We'll put the head in the sun and take pictures of it to take a look at how much we've collected. And then we'll do a sample mass measurement activity where we do a series of spins to estimate the mass of the material in there. If you think about it, We need 60 grams on Earth. You just put that on a scale and you weigh it. But without Earth's gravity, we can't weigh something in space. So we have to do a series of other activities to estimate the mass instead. Mm. Why go to all this trouble? (laughs) Uh, There are many reasons. Uh, Bennu, as an asteroid, we believe, holds some of the original materials of the solar system. And this organic material, hopefully, is the same material that seeded life on Earth. So if we can bring back a pristine sample from there, it can tell us a lot about how life started on Earth. Whoa. I don't want to raise the specter of this, but um, I'm curious, journalistically, what happens if you don't get the sample or it's not enough or you wish you had more? Is there any possibility of a do-over? There is, yeah. We can actually perform our touch-and-go event three times. Uh, So this is 
number one, and we hope the only one. Uh, but if we need to, if we don't collect a sample or we don't collect enough sample, we can go back twice more and resample. How soon would you go back? Within the same day? Uh, not within the same day. Okay. It takes several weeks uh, to put ourselves in the perfect trajectory to approach the asteroid. Uh, so the next sample attempt we would make would be in January if tomorrow's event does not go as planned. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Olivia. And um, I, I so appreciate how cool, calm, and collected you are ahead of this. I wish I could borrow some of your serenity. <laughs> well, I hope that uh, you'll follow us on NASA Live. They're going to be broadcasting the event. It'll be very exciting to see us touch an asteroid tomorrow. Olivia Billet is a systems engineer at Lockheed Martin in Littleton and the science lead for the OSIRIS-REx mission. Tomorrow, it'll make NASA's first ever attempt to grab an asteroid sample. Thanks for sidling up to Colorado Matters today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.